before we get started on the sermon, I was handed a note. I hadn't realized this. Uh, the Cascade volleyball team won state yesterday in 4A. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, very cool. What was that? Football is in semifinals. Wow, awesome. Very cool. All right, so we are in the uh, uh, episode nine of The Plan. The Plan is a sermon series where we're going through the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the story. And we're looking at the one plot that drives the whole thing because it's really easy to read the Old Testament, especially the section that we're in. We're in Leviticus. Are you all excited for Leviticus? It can be really hard to read Leviticus and read that as part of our story and figure out what that has to do with me or how we're even dealing with the same God as, as in that part of the Bible. But the truth is it's all one story and it's all moving through one plot. And so what we've been talking about so far is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. And at every stage of the Bible, that is what God is doing. So in the beginning, he created the earth and then he filled it with people, and he gave them a purpose to rule the earth on his behalf, and on the seventh day, he rested with them. And that was the goal, was, was for humanity to be living out their purpose as God's um, appointed rulers and uh, be in his presence. And then we messed it up. And so we remember in Genesis 3, human beings were exiled from the garden, and they lost their access to the, the presence of God in that, that special location on earth. And ever since, we've been trying to, we've been watching God work to restore that relationship. And we've gotten pretty close, right? So God chose one family, Abraham's family, and he said, I'm going to use your family, and I'm going to give you your own place, and I'm going to give you a special purpose, and I'm going to create the plan just with you. I'm going to establish the plan just with you to bless the whole rest of the world. So he's he's just picking one family to be his project, and he brought them out of Egypt, and brought them to Mount Sinai, which we, were, we found out then that God's presence was on Sinai. And so God's people have now met him at the mountain, except the God's at the top of the mountain and they're at the bottom of the mountain. And God gave them the designs for the tabernacle so he could move, basically move in with them, move into the tabernacle in their camp. And right as they're getting those designs, as Moses is getting those designs, the Israelites come up with their own plan using a golden calf. They completely break the covenant and it seems like all is lost. But... Through the course of God responding to that and working with Moses, God and Moses come to an agreement that he is going to forgive the Israelites. And that's where we left the story, that God had forgiven the Israelites, and so now they have the plans for the tabernacle, and they're working on the tabernacle, and God's on the mountain, and we're still waiting. We've been waiting since Genesis 3 for God and humanity to start living together. And we are so close. And so today, we're going to be looking at the entire book of Leviticus, and which is really law heavy. Like it doesn't actually, it only has two stories in it. But what we're going to find out is that those, those laws are part of the story. And this, may, this is the very center of the five books of Moses. And in a couple of ways, it is the most important part of the entire story. So we're actually going to start by reading the end of Exodus into Leviticus, which is one continuous section. You know, the five books of Moses are actually one book, just in five parts. And as I'm reading, I'm going to have you track the coordinates for the story, okay? You're going to look for people, who is the story about, place, where is their home, presence, how can they meet with God, and purpose, what did God tell them to do? I'll encourage you this time to write a little small, because we're actually going to have to go back and add a couple of things. 
So I'm going to read you this section and just keep track of those four things, okay? This is the beginning of Exodus 40. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. And we'll get a whole chapter's worth of describing exactly what they did and where they set things up. And it ends this way. Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, wherever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from his tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Dot, dot, dot. Seven chapters on sacrifices. Okay? Now here's the thing. Like I said, Leviticus has a lot of laws. It's mostly just laws. And we tend to think that those laws are not story. There's story and then there's laws. But you'll notice there's quotation marks around all the laws. Because the laws are actually dialogue. The laws are not in the law of Moses so that you can figure them out and follow them yourself. The laws, if they were, they would all just be in one section. There would actually be a law of Moses book. They're actually spread throughout the story because they are part of the story. And so it matters that at this point, God then gives them seven chapters of uh, sacrificial rules. Okay? That's part of this, these coordinates. So, let's go back and, and do our coordinates. Who is the story about? Mo- it's still Moses and the Israelites, which is who it's been for the last couple of weeks. Um, the Israelites are God's people, and Moses has been appointed as a special go-between. Right? He is a mediator. He represents Israel to God and then represents God to Israel. Now, where is their home? It isn't said explicitly here, but you can see evidence of it. We know that their home is the promised land, and you can tell because they're at the mountain of God, but God doesn't tell them to build a temple on the mountain. He tells them to build a tent that they can take with them. And it talks about how the tent, you know, they're going to go up and follow the the glory of God around. So we know that it's mobile. We know that they're going to go to the promised land. Okay? Now, here's the really big important thing that happens at the end of Exodus. Where can they meet with God? In the tabernacle. Exodus 40 is incredibly important because God, that's when God moves from the mountain of Sinai into the tabernacle. So now God finally lives with human beings again. He is finally in their presence. That's why if you read the design of the tabernacle, the imagery connects back to the the, uh, Garden of Eden. Because the idea is this is a new Garden of Eden. So now God finally lives with human beings again. God has an address. He's going to move with them and journey with them and live in their presence. So finally, after waiting since Genesis 3, God now lives with his people and they have access to him. Maybe. We'll come back to that. Now what purpose does he give them? What are his instructions now that he lives in the tabernacle? He spent seven chapters laying out exactly how to do it. They're supposed to offer sacrifices in God's presence. Now, we don't have enough time to get into all of this. If you, uh, if you want to know more detail, you can actually go back to our Terms and Conditions series that we did last fall. You can find that on our website. 
But uh, the sacrificial system primarily is about having a relationship with God. It's actually, what happens is you bring in an animal, you slaughter it, and God gets part of the animal and you burn it for him, and you get part of the animal and you eat it. So we, think that mo- we tend to think that most sacrifices were about guilt and dealing with sin. That's not true. Most sacrifices were actually about having a relationship with God. It was about potlucking with God and the priest. And you would say thank you for things, and you would celebrate things, and you would have just because... And Casey's family, they have Tuesday gifts. That means you just got it. You know, they just thought of you and gave it to you. They're a Tuesday sacrifice. Let's just, let's just go celebrate in the tabernacle with God. Right? That's what the sacrificial system is about. However, there's a problem with these instructions. You may or may not have caught it in the session. Anybody notice a problem with God telling them to bring sacrifices to him in the tabernacle? Hmm. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Did you catch that? Now before, Moses could go up the mountain, but the Israelites couldn't. But now, God's presence is focused in this man-made tent, and it's so intense that even Moses can't go in. No one can enter the tabernacle. In fact, in Leviticus 1, remember, it, it, Moses doesn't go in to talk to God. It says God spoke to him from outside, from, from the tabernacle. Because Moses can't go in to talk to God. So there's a problem with the meeting with God, which is no one can actually enter the tabernacle. They know where he is, but they can't get in because it's, it's, the presence is too intense. That issue gets addressed in Leviticus chapter 8 because once God gives them the instructions for how to do the sacrifices, he talks to them about who does the sacrifices. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons their garments, the anointing oil, the bowl for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast. Gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, now do you know why all those things are significant? Probably not, because I haven't read all of Exodus out loud to you. But there's a section in Exodus that we didn't read where, he, where God tells Moses, Aaron and his sons are going to be my priests. Here are the exact procedures I want you to go through when you ordain them. That list of items is in that, those things. You, so if you've been reading that section, you go, oh yeah, okay, he wants them, it's time to do the ordination thing. They're going to make, turn, take Aaron and his sons and make them priests. So, the second thing they have to do, but they have to do it first, is ordain Aaron and his sons to serve in God's presence. Somebody needs to be able to actually go into the tabernacle, and God chose Aaron and his sons. So, what that tells us is that this story is not just about Moses and the Israelites. Now, it's also going to be specifically about Aaron and his sons. They're going to play a central role in this story. So, we've got our coordinates now. The story is about Aaron and his sons and the Israelites and Moses. They're on their way into the promised land, and they have access to God in the tabernacle, but no one can actually enter yet. So God tells them, ordain priests, and once those priests are ordained, then we, then, you know, we can start making appointments, you can start coming in and meeting with God. Right? So that's where we're at as we go into Leviticus 8. So the first question is, what did the human characters do in the story? Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. 
He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He also fastened the ephod with a decorative waistband, which he tied around him. He placed the breastplate on him and put the urim and the thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, in the front of it as the Lord commanded Moses. There's a lot of things in there that it sounds like you're supposed to know what they are, right? Like, it just says the urim and thummim. The breastplate, the turban. Well, that's because those are exactly the things that God describes in Exodus. God had given them very explicit instructions. And so that's why you'll notice at the end of this line, it says, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, that's only the first paragraph of this chapter describing the whole ceremony where they ordain Aaron and his sons. And I'm going to read you the whole thing, but I'm going to highlight a couple, of, a few verses that sound similar. Uh, verse 13, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 17 ends, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21 ends, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29 ends, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the whole section ends, so Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord commanded through Moses. Can you tell that the author is emphasizing something? They did exactly what God told them to do. If you find a phrase repeated over and over and over again in a passage, it's probably really important and it'll probably help you figure out the theme of that passage. So the first thing that God's people do in this story is they ordain Aaron and his sons according to God's commands. Which is a good start. So they follow exactly what God told them to do, which is a lot better than they did with the golden calf. Remember, that got them into real trouble so now they're very, being very particular about following the rules. So that's the first thing they do. Now they spend seven days ordaining Aaron and his sons, and now they have an ordained priesthood. They have people who have gone through God's ceremony to appoint his people who are supposed to be able to worship with God. Now you'll notice, nobody has really successfully officiated public worship of God yet. We've had some significant failures in the Tower of Babel and the Golden Calf. People keep trying to do it their ways, and each time it goes badly. But this time it's supposed to work. It's supposed to. And so they, they decide to kick off this, this, worship, this uh, sacrificial system on the eighth day. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel and said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. You know, this is a really big deal. Essentially, this is the moment we've been waiting for since Genesis 3. This is the moment when God and his people actually begin a real interactive relationship where the people of Israel are able to be in God's presence. If this works, human beings have been trying from their end to make this work since the Tower of Babel, and it has failed every time. Okay? But now, they're going to do things God's way, and they're going to see what happens. Aaron waved the breast and right side before the Lord as a wave offering, as Moses commanded him. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron went, then went into the tent of meeting. This is the scary part, right? The tension is building because we don't know what's going to happen. And the passage has not gone well. So the second thing they did was that Aaron and sons, they, they opened the tabernacle for worship according to God's commands. They did all the worship, all the, all the right um, sacrifices, and exactly the way God told them to. And now they're basically saying, all right, this is the place on earth to worship God, to interact with God and experience His presence. 
We're really hoping that they're right. So, we're going to skip to the next page of your bulletin. We're going to look at uh, the first, uh, what did God do line, okay? And then we'll come back. So, here's what it says. When Moses and Aaron came out, which is good news, they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Okay, so they'd done all the sacrificing. They had slaughtered the animals. They had taken the parts that belonged to God and they had piled them on an altar that was unlit. And normally what you would do is a fire... I mean, this is wet stuff. The fire would take all day to burn through this stuff, right? But it's not even lit yet. And all of a sudden... So Moses and Aaron come out, so they're alive, that's a good thing, and then the glory of God shines out from the tabernacle, that's a really good thing, and then fire comes out of the tabernacle and burns up the sacrifice just in a minute, or just like that, instantly, and lights the altar fire. So that's God himself. This is, this is the opening Olympic ceremonies when they light the cauldron, right? Like, it's open for business. Like, that's God saying, this is right, let's do it. He's accepting the whole thing, he's endorsing the whole thing. This is a really, really big deal. This is the moment when the relationship between God and Israel is finally functioning because now they can actually interact with God's presence in the tabernacle. And this tells us a lot because we've seen human beings try and interact, uh, initiate this relationship with God and fail multiple times. And if you're reading through the story and watching for this, it tells you something about God when you recognize which moment he chooses to show up. If, God ha- if the power of battle had worked, that would tell you something about God. That would tell you that God needed a ladder to get down from heaven. The fact that he didn't show up means God doesn't need a ladder. If he had shown up over the golden path, that would have told you that God could be enticed by a fancy bull that he could ride. Right? But it didn't work, so that tells you that's not God. So when God shows up, he's revealing the kind of God he is. This is God saying, I'm Yahweh, and I endorse this worship. Right? So this tells you something about who God is. So what God did here is he revealed his character by appearing with Moses and Aaron. When he appears in this moment, he's saying, you did it right, and that makes a difference. And what you did reflects who I am. It shows the kind of relationship that I want with you. It shows the kind of God that I am. This communicates to them the nature of their God. That's really important because that's, that tells us that God's identity is at stake in how he participates in Israelite worship. Right? The way he participates in Israelite worship, it shows you who God is. That is really important to understand as we move into the next part of the story. Because what have we come to expect human beings to do right after God takes some big step in the plan? They mess it up, right? Don't worry, they won't disappoint you this time. Or they will, depending on how you look at it. This is the very next verse. After God shows up and burns up the sacrifices, says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Now, what does that mean? If you do some detective work, there are three possible things that are going on. One thing is pretty certain. It says unauthorized fire. So, a sensor is a metal, usually like a metal ball kind of structure, and you put coals, you put fire in there, and then you put incense on top of the coals, so they will burn up the incense, and the incense will float out, and then usually hang it on a chain and swing it. 
And you usually use that to enter the tabernacle, right? Now, it wasn't the incense that was the problem, it was the fire. Now, so it was alien fire is how it's actually translated. What that probably means is you have a fire lit by God himself, and instead of getting their coals from the fire that God lit, they went to some random campfire and threw in a couple of briquettes, and that's what they used. They were very casual about how they approached God. And that's a problem, because everything that happens in the tabernacle tells you something about God. And so they, they violated God's commands by getting their briquettes from the wrong fire source. It's kind of like, you know, when I actually I did some, study, uh, some studying before this about the Olympic flame, because it's kind of a good comparison. I didn't know they light that by the rays of the sun in the temple of Athena in Athens. That's where the fire comes from. Okay? And then they, they light multiple torches so that they have multiple sources of fire because then if the Olympic torch goes out, you're supposed to light it from another Olympic torch. Actually, now the torch has, one, has two sources of flame inside. Uh, there's one inside of it and then one that you can see. So you can relight it. But there have been a couple of times that the torch went out and somebody like used a Zippo to relight it. And then some Olympic official had to come over and douse it so they could use the official fire. That's just the Olympics people care that much about this special fire. Now imagine, combine that with how people feel about the flag, right? And how we would feel about, like, burning the flag or stepping on the flag or desecrating the flag. And you're starting to get closer to how they would feel about this source of divine fire, okay? Another thing that they might have done, as we're going to see in chapter 16, Chapter 16 kind of indicates that they may have been trying to enter into God's presence, actually go into the Holy of Holies, the very center of the tabernacle when they did this, which is especially bad. And a third possibility from another passage that we'll read in a second indicates they may have been drunk when they did all of this. Basically, they messed up. Okay? So, the third thing that God's people did is that two of Aaron's sons approached the tabernacle against God's commands. This is a big deal because what happens in the tabernacle reveals God to the world. So, how does God respond? Well, he responds to the, their desecration of the, of the uh, tabernacle in basically the same way he responded to what Aaron and Moses did uh, when they did it right, just with a different target in mind. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It's the exact same phrasing. Exact same thing happened, except instead of burning up the sacrifices, it burned up the priests. As if to say, there is only one fire in the tabernacle, and if you bring another one in, God's fire wins. Now, I'm making a little bit light of what would probably have been a very gruesome um, thing to experience. And you can tell as you read the chapter, people react you know, emotionally that this is hard to experience, especially for Aaron and his other sons, because they have to keep working. But Moses acknowledges that, and he takes a moment to explain to Aaron exactly why this happens in a very important verse. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Now, why did God burn up these guys for making this mistake, or, or even being rebellious in this little, little way? It sounds like an, exact, like an overreaction. It also makes us fearful that God will... Are we saying that God reacts this way every time somebody makes some little ceremonial mistake? Like, if I, if I spill a little bit of communion juice, am I going to... Like, is this just who God is? But what Paul... Oh, not Paul. What Moses is saying here is that this is a very special circumstance. This is very special. Notice what he says. Among those who approach me... That's technical language that would refer to priests. 
I will be proved holy. Now, the word holy, it tells, it means um, distinct, different, unique, pure. So God is completely different from his created being, from any other God we may ever imagine, or anything else. He's completely unique. He has a completely unique uh, character, okay? And he is demonstrating that through his people, okay? Through his priests. It says, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. So, there's two ways that God does that. Basically, what he's saying is, I will show the world who I am through my interactions with my people, with my priests. Okay, so, when the priest comes up and does the right thing, and does things that portray God accurately, God shows up. Right? God endorses it. God says, yes, this is me. This shows you who I am. I approve this message. Look here to see me. Okay? But what happens when the priests misrepresent God? If God doesn't do anything, people assume that God is that what they did represents God too. Where they see God's priests, they will infer God. Unless God makes it clear that he does not endorse what they did. And so God proves his holiness through his relationship with his people, either endorsing their godliness or condemning their ungodliness. Both things do the same, both, both reactions do the same thing. So God revealed his character by appearing to Moses and Aaron and by destroying the disobedient priest. It's the flip side of this very, like there's a very special blessing in getting to live in the physical presence of God. There's also an extreme danger that goes along with it. So this isn't talking, God isn't watching people all over the world and zapping them when they step out of line in a little ceremonial thing. This is a very special situation that God is revealing himself through what happens in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle only works if God participates. And God uses that, like he shows up in those ways to say, this is, I endorse this, I do not endorse this. Now, that is a little terrifying when you're Israel, right? Imagine if you put a fish bumper sticker, uh, you know, one of those fish things on your car, and then you found out that once you put that on, God will zap you if you break a traffic law. Who's walking everywhere at that point, right? Like, that's scary. That's kind of like what they found out. But that sets up the whole rest of the book of Leviticus. Because after this happens with, um, with Aaron's sons, the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink when you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. So there's this very important message that is communicated through the tabernacle, and it has to do with what can be brought into the tabernacle. These, we, don't, we don't have the same kind of context for clean and unclean. But basically, what, he, what we find out when God explains these rules to people is that God is a God of life and goodness, and so you cannot have death or evil or corruption in his tabernacle because that misrepresents who God is. If death or corruption flourishes in the tabernacle, you assume that God's okay with death and corruption. So you've got to keep that out of the tabernacle, okay? So what he does is he then gives them the rest of the book of Leviticus is all rules for the priests to tell them how to differentiate between clean and unclean, because it's their job to keep the tabernacle pure. So, this is where they find out. Skin diseases, because their culture connected skin disease with death, if you have skin disease, don't come in the tabernacle. 
If you are bleeding, don't come in the tabernacle. If you've eaten a vulture lately, don't come in the tabernacle because we associate that animal with death. Like all these things are about the symbolism of communicating God's holiness and his identity as the source of life. And so what he's doing is he's, the priests are responsible for all of this. But God doesn't leave them in the dark. He spends chapter after chapter explaining in detail what that looks like. So, God taught the priests how to keep the tabernacle pure from corruption. He's not just up there waiting for them to, to, you know, to break rules they don't even know about. He gives them chapters. That's why it, I think that's why Leviticus is so long and you get sucked into so many laws, is to show God really give, gave them all the information they needed to do this job. However, the other feeling you'll get as you read all of these laws is, man, this is a lot of laws. How could anybody keep up with these laws? How could anybody make sure that none of these were ever broken? And if they're ever broken, fire's going to come out of the tabernacle and kill the priest, and you're going to end up with no priest in a hurry. Right? Like, this is too much. How could a person handle this? How could they actually do this? And that brings us to the very central chapter of the books of Moses. Leviticus chapter 16. Because God gives them the rules for how to keep the tabernacle pure, but then he creates this very special ceremony. And he explicitly connects it with what happened to Aaron's sons. So in Leviticus 16 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. That's the lid of the ark, the very center of the, of the tabernacle. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. And dot, 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 and it begins to give us all of the regulations for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay? And in this process, they do all these special sacrifices to cleanse the high priest so that he can go in. And then they choose two goats, and they basically roll dice, and one becomes the goat for the, uh, for the sin offering, and the other one becomes the scapegoat. And at the pinnacle, at the high point of this day, here's what happens. The high priest shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, and take its blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same thing for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall make, take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. Now notice what's happening on the Day of Atonement. Okay? The Day of Atonement is not about cleansing the Israelites. The Day of Atonement is about cleansing the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is the focus of the relationship between God and humanity, and people will understand God based on what happens in the tabernacle. So, blood is associated with life, and life is the detergent that cleans away death. So, if, if there is death residue that got into the tabernacle because the priest missed some stuff, it needs to be cleaned out with life. And so, he goes in and he cleans the tabernacle with life. It's a detergent to clean this space, God's divine space on earth. That's what they're actually cleansing. 
And the reason they're doing this is so that God doesn't have to burn up every priest who ever messes up. Because what, what could happen is some foreigner would come in and look at the tabernacle and say, oh, hey, that's great about, about your God and all, except that I noticed you shook hands with a guy who had a skin disease. You didn't see it, but I did. And then you went into the tabernacle and God didn't kill you. So what, does God not know that you were unclean or does he not care that you were unclean? Really, even, even though the person didn't know they were unclean, God should have to kill them, right? Because God knew. And what that person can now say is, no, God knew, and God cares about the, the cleanliness of his tabernacle. And that's what the Day of Atonement is for. That he, he gave us a way to deal with those without destroying us. By cleaning away whatever residue there might be, whatever mistakes we've made, anything that we missed is cleaned out by this Day of Atonement. So yeah, he doesn't agree with what I did. He is not okay with death, but we cleaned it a different way without having to burn me to a crisp. That's what they can say now. So the third thing that God did was God gave them a ceremony to deal with their failures to keep the tabernacle pure. That's his mercy, and that is how God creates a, re- a sustainable relationship with broken people. Because if God didn't have some way to deal with our brokenness, then he would just end up burning all of us, right? The Israelites would never have made it out of the wilderness because they would have kept making mistakes and been destroyed. But God understands that we're broken, and God makes a way for that relationship to work by using the blood of, of goats to cleanse the tabernacle, to make the message clear about who he is. Now, this still creates the possibility that the Israelites will fail to properly follow the Day of Atonement, fail to actually work this system because they still have a role in it, and that's going to happen. And God's ultimately going to revoke the whole system because the Israelites can't even make this system work for them. But this was an act of grace that God gave them to create the potential for a working relationship with broken people. So this is a, a very gracious thing that God does by giving them the Day of Atonement. And it sets them up to have a relationship as they journey towards the promised land. Now, as I said, it can be hard for us to connect this God that we've been talking about with the God that we worship and the God that we believe in. It can be hard for us to think that that's the same God working the same plan. But it is. We deal with the same God today. And so there are important lessons for us to learn from this, this episode. Number one is that the goal of the covenant is to reveal God's character to the world through his relationship with his people. When you are God's people, what you do matters, not just because it may be right or may be wrong, and God does not want wrong things and destructive things done, but also because we have fish on our foreheads. Right? Because what people, will, what, what people see in God's people, they will infer about God. So there is an added level of seriousness to the behavior of God's people because people will judge God based on what they see in you when they know that you are God's people. So that, the, that's what, the, what covenant adds to being God's people. That's what it means to be in covenant with Him. That was God's plan with Israel, and it's the same way with Christians today. So that means that the mission of God's people is to accurately represent God's character to the world. Not just because it's right and good, but also because it is how the world comes to know about God. Righteousness is missional, you might say. Reflecting God's character is an essential part of our mission to bring others to Christ. 
Because if, we, if we're not representing God accurately and we, they, we bring them to where we are, we're not bringing them to Christ. So, the mission of God's people is to accurately represent God's character to the world. And the last thing that we learn from this story is that when God's people fail, God has to set the record straight by condemning their sins. This is an important thing for us to get right about God's character. So often what we'll hear is that God just hates sin so much and he's so angry that he just has to kill somebody or something. And that's where the sacrificial system comes from. God's just so mad, he just sees red and he's not going to be okay with us until he's killed somebody. That's not the issue. The obstacle is not God's temper that he can't control. The issue is showing the world who God really is. Because there is a danger if God doesn't deal with sin that we won't understand that God is anti-sin. That we will misunderstand God's plan for this world and we will think that His plan involves all of this, all the ungodly things that we do and we'll think that God is no better than we are. But God is holy. God is different and God calls us to something better. And so the only way God can reveal who He really is is by setting the record straight when we mess up. Which is a scary notion. And I, honestly, that is the reason why I don't have a fish on my bumper is because I'm not sure I can commit to reflecting God well by the way I drive. And I'll get a, chan- a second chance with people when I cut them off and they see that, bump, that thing on my bumper. So that is, that is a scary burden to carry. Which is why I'm going to give you a spoiler. Okay? Because God is incredibly gracious. God is incredibly merciful. And Paul is tracking with all of this, um, this uh, sacrificial logic in the book of Romans when he says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That phrase, sacrifice of atonement, is the Greek word that's the same as the atonement cover in, in Hebrew. It refers to the cover of the ark, where God and humanity meet and where the blood is sprinkled. So God presented Christ. What Jesus did on the cross was the same as what was done on the Day of Atonement. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God, if God wants to forgive us, the obstacle is... But that means he's, he's, he's passing over sin. And that tells us that God doesn't care about sin. So God created a way to forgive us and to still accurately show us who he is by sending Christ to die on the cross. Because now if anybody asks why God hasn't destroyed me for all of my sins, for all the things I've done wrong, I can say, hey, those things that I did, they were wrong, and they do not represent God, and God does not take them lightly. In fact, He takes them so seriously that His Son died on the cross so that they could be dealt with without destroying me. So Jesus' death does not mean that it doesn't matter what we do. Because remember, our, our ability to, to reflect God is essential to our mission to bring people to Christ. But it means that when I mess up, people are going to say, see, God, God is okay with what you did. No, he's not. God set the record straight once and for all when he sent Jesus to die on our behalf. 
And that opens up a way for us to be able to live in a relationship with a God who is, who is holy, who is pure, who is good, and who knows that we are broken. He made up the difference so that we can live out this mission even though we're going to fail. It doesn't give us permission to fail. We should not settle for failing. But it means that when we do, we can point to the cross and say, Jesus made up the difference. God is better than me. And He calls all of us into this relationship with Him. So as we close, I want to invite you to consider taking a next step. And I don't know what the next step is for you, but it might be one of these. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you need to recognize that you're broken and ask God to cleanse you of your sin, to make up for your weaknesses, and to lead you into this mission that He has for His people, to be better than we could ever be ourselves, and to to be a part of this plan. Today is the best day for you to make that decision. I encourage you to come forward during our final song if that's the decision you're making today, or you can talk to one of the ministers after the service. If you're online, we encourage you to get a hold of us um, through the church website or give us a call or talk to a Christian that you trust. We also encourage you, if you're looking for a church home, to sign up for our Connect class. This is a class where we spend an hour and a half on a Sunday after church um, eating together and talking about who the church is, uh, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. So if you're interested in getting more connected, we encourage you to check that box on your Connect card, and and we'll get in touch with you about scheduling one of those. We also encourage you to join a small group, and you can check a box on your Connect card for that as well. This is where we get into a deeper relationship with others, and we encourage each other and we build each other up as we work to be uh, holy. God gave the priests to educate the Israelites and to teach them, and we teach each other and we work together to be God's people. And finally, we encourage you to join the service team because God calls us to give to others and to serve others. And our church makes it a point to offer opportunities for our congregation to serve others, either here in the church or in our community. So you can also check that box on your Connect card. So I'd like you to consider now as we stand and sing our final song, what is the next step that God is calling you to? Please join us.